This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. We will be joined in a few minutes by Sarah Dixie, Dixwell Brown, who has a new book that's just fascinating, Regicide in the Family. We'll also have on later in the show Duke Goldman talking baseball with the Duke. First, I want to share with you a few thoughts about what the Supreme Court did yesterday. Not the most disturbing, very disturbing, but not the most disturbing thing the Supreme Court has done in the last, say, couple of weeks. But let me share with you the headline from the New York Times today, religious, religious, well, it's, it's just a change in the entire approach of the Supreme Court to freedom of religion in the United States. Here's the headline, justices bolster religious rights in prayer ruling. I would actually amend that, say, justices bolster Christian rights in prayer ruling. Next subhead, upending precedents. This is the uh, case of the Washington State football coach who uh, led his team and led the uh, fans in a prayer on the 50-yard line after the game. Uh, Here's what the Times reports. Justice Neil M. Gorsuch, writing for the majority, said the prayers of the coach, Joseph Kennedy, were protected by the First Amendment. Now, what he's saying is that the free exercise clause of the First Amendment protects the coach's, his name is Kennedy, uh, protects his right to pray on the 50-yard line of the football field. The problem with the recitation, or one of the problems with the recitation, which exalts this free exercise uh, right over the Establishment Clause uh, right, which says that the state shall not establish a religion, foster a religion, promote a religion, endorse a religion, support a religion. This, that's the Establishment Clause. And the, 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 the Supreme Court, since it wants to make the country a Christian and perhaps a Catholic country, um, basically doesn't care about the Establishment Clause as long as the Free Exercise Clause is there. They will say you have the right, or people have the right to uh, impose their religion on others. Of course, that's not how they put it, but it is what it means. Um, Here's from the Times again today. Bolstering religious rights, and notably those of Christians, has been a signature project of the court led by Chief Justice John G. Roberts, Jr. In the past few years, excuse me, the court has ruled that a Catholic social services agency could refuse to work with same-sex couples based on their religion. State programs, private schools must include religious schools. That's from Montana. Uh, Employers uh, with religious objections can deny contraception coverage to female workers. Uh, The number of cases in which the court says, yes, your Christian beliefs are paramount uh, in our constitutional scheme. Not what they say. It is what they do. So uh, let me just read one or two other sentences. Rachel Lazer, the president of the Americans, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, which represented the Washington School Board in the case, which, of course, lost at the Supreme Court yesterday, lamented what she said was the latest in a series of mounting setbacks eroding the wall between religious and between religion and the public sphere. Quote, Today, the court continues its assault on church-state separation by falsely describing coercive prayer as personal. And really, they did that. We know now, and I think the country knows now, that this court doesn't care about precedent. It cares about imposing its own ideological views on the country, its own religious views on the country, its own political views on the country. That's what the abortion case is about. Uh, can the Supreme Court its own impose its own religious and personal and political views on the country? And the answer is yes, well, they're the Supreme Court. So they can ignore the law. They can make up the law. Don't pay attention to anything the Supreme Court said in the past. We are the true believers, and we know what the founders wanted to do, and we are going to impose our view of that on the country. So here's the most disturbing part of yesterday or certainly one of the most disturbing parts of yesterday's decision. Justice Gorsuch wrote that Mr. Kennedy, that's the coach, he's the coach, had sought only to offer a brief, silent, and solitary prayer. The problem with that statement is that it's wrong. 
The Times goes on to report that Justice Sotomayor responded that the public nature of the prayer and his stature as a leader, that is, as a coach, and as a role model meant that students felt forced to participate. And, of course, one student actually submitted an affidavit that said, I felt like I had to participate in this prayer service even though I don't believe it in it and I didn't want to do it. And what happened in reality and what uh, uh, Sotomayor points out is Kennedy, the coach, consistently invited others to join his prayers and for years led student-athletes in prayer. He did that in the locker room as well. In an unusual move, this dissent included photographs showing Mr. Kennedy kneeling with, prayer, with players and others around him on the 50-yard line. So what we know now and what the Supreme Court has demonstrated is it will just make up the law in order to get to the result it wants and to make the country as Christian and Catholic as it can and impose those religious beliefs on others, which is the disturbing part. But what the court said yesterday is not only will it make up the law, not only will it rewrite the Constitution, but it will make up the facts. Sure, in the abortion ruling, the court lied about the law. And in this ruling, it simply, in addition to reversing uh, 50 years of precedent again, more than 50 years of precedent again, it also will invent the facts. It can make up the facts, and it will. It will invent facts, and it has, and it will invent the law. And this is supposed to be a nation of laws and not of jurists. This Supreme Court is wildly, wildly uh, inappropriate and wildly wrong and really dangerous. The separation of church and state is almost non-existent after this ruling. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The election was not stolen. Trump-appointed judges say it was not stolen. Republican-led investigations say it was not stolen. Republican officials responsible for county votes say it wasn't stolen. And if you're an elected official and you continue smashing the truth, even after all that we have learned about what happened on January 6th, you are supporting fascism. WHMP 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. State Street Fruit Store. What the heck is a fruit store anyway? Well, State Street opened in Northampton in the 1920s as a fruit store, selling local fruit and other produce from the valley. And even though State Street has grown to be much more, deli, wines, spirits, they are still a fruit store. And right now, State Street and their sister store, Cooper's Corner in Florence, are buried in berries, strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, schnozberries. Okay, they don't have any schnozberries, but they've got every other kind of local berry going. State Street, Fruit Store, and Cooper's Corner have always offered produce, picked by our Connecticut River Valley neighbors as soon as and as long as they're available. So come get fruit at a fruit store. Northampton has always been a fruity place. We are what we eat. State Street, Fruit Store in Northampton and Cooper's Corner in even fruitier Florence. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. My name is Joanne Vanine. I am a CASA worker, court-appointed special advocate for the organization Friends of Children. I first got involved with the CASA program back in 2004. I was still full-time employed at that time as the uh, dean of students at UMass Amherst. The case that inspires me relates to a young man. There were issues of physical abuse. There were issues of drug abuse. Through the advocacy work that I did, this young man was placed with a family 
in Springfield. It was a rocky start. But the good news is that this foster family stepped up and said that they would adopt him. Almost immediately, I began to see the change in him in terms of his own confidence in himself, which clearly derived from a sense of security. And that also was evidenced in the way he performed in school. The really happy ending to this is I got a text message saying to me, look at my report card, and he is on the honor roll. Learn more about becoming a CASA advocate by visiting Friends of Children's offices on Route 9 in Hadley or going to friendsofchildreninc.org. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We welcome to the show Sarah Dixwell-Brown, known to her friends as Dixie. She is a longtime Amherst resident who has taught at Mount Holyoke College and the UMass Honors College. Uh, She uh, has published uh, extensively in the Daily Hampshire Gazette. She was previously a reporter for the Concord Monitor, and she has a new book. Dixie has a new book. The book uh, launched just uh, about a week ago, the title of which is Regicide in the Family. Subtitle, Finding John Dixwell. Regicide in the family. I must say, uh, Dixie, I had to scratch my head a bit and say, regicide? Let's start there. What's regicide? And then we're going to find out in just a second. And what's your family got to do with it? But regicide, what is it? Well, we struggled a lot to whether to include the word regicide in the title of the book because we thought nobody would know what it meant. But all you need to do is think about germicide, matricide, homicide, uh, pesticide, it means killing, and reg means king. So it's the killing of a king. Okay, the killing of a king in your family. I think our listeners are all ears. You have regicide in your family. Tell us what <laughs> happened. <laughs> and I say to our listeners, really, do she again. does. She oh, does. No. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do when the leader of the country is doing unconscionable things? They're leading to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Apparently, more people died during Charles I's reign. He was the king who was killed. He was killed in 1649 in a public ceremony in front of thousands of his own subjects, in front of one of his palaces in beautiful downtown London. And it it just took one blow of the axe to get his head removed and this groan came out of the crowd. It was just thousands of people in the streets. Okay. The king is executed. How did it come about? What happened that preceded the execution of the king? And then we're going to find out in just a few minutes what happened to those who, well, arranged for his execution, which is going to bring us to the story of Sarah Dixwell Brown's family. Okay. What happened preceding the execution? There were two civil wars, and after his execution, there was a third civil war. More people died in those wars and of starvation and disease than in the First World War, more British citizens. Um, He had been the king for 25 years. He believed in the divine rights of kings, which meant that what he said went, that nobody could go against him. If he disagreed with Parliament, he just sent them home. So they tried and tried to to make deals with him, to compromise with him, and uh, in the end they gave up. And it was essentially an impeachment. They tried to do it legally. They tried. There was no precedent, of course, but they they tried to set precedent. They brought in a Dutch lawyer, and they created a a court of law. And my seven greats grandfather was one of the fifty nine people who served as judges and signed his death warrant and sentenced him to death for treason against his own people. And he was executed. Yes. We still don't know who the executioner was because he would have been torn limb from limb. Okay. We're going to come back to this story. I often ask authors if they would share some of reading some of their uh, books so we can hear, so listeners can hear what it sounds like. And perhaps you could read for us the a paragraph that begins, I'm looking near the beginning on page four, although John Dixwell is my seven greats-grandfather. This tells a bit of the story and moves the narrative along. Perhaps you could uh, read those uh, short paragraphs to us, please. Sure, Bill. Although John Dixwell is my seven greats-grandfather 
and my parents named me Sarah Dixwell Brown. I didn't know he existed until I found him in an old book in the British Museum when I was 28. His story in my branch of his descendants had all but disappeared. John Dixwell's key to Dover Castle was another thing I knew nothing about until my father gave it to me unceremoniously one day when I was in my early 40s. He'd bundled it in a plastic produce bag from the local supermarket. You should have this, he said. Your name is Dixwell. Besides, you're the only one who's taken the time to find out about him. The strangeness of that moment has stayed with me all the decades since. Why wasn't my father excited to be in the eighth generation to own that key? If anything, he seemed a bit embarrassed to be burdening me the ninth with the unusual responsibility of owning the key of a king killer. Okay, after your eight greats grandfather participated in the trial and execution of the King of England, bad things happened in response. Tell us what they were. Well, first you should know that for 11 years, it wasn't a monarchy. They tried to do something that really laid some of the groundwork for um, our constitution 100 years later. They, it was at first a republic, but, but it just, you know, it was such a new idea. There was a lot of struggle. But John Dixwell was actually on the Council of State. He was pretty important in this brand new government. But then um, Oliver Cromwell rose more and more in the ranks and became basically another tyrant, just like Charles I. And my ancestor, John Dixwell, was pretty, we suspect, unhappy under Cromwell's, it was called the protectorate. They, they wanted to crown him king, but instead he decided he wanted to be called the Lord Protector. But it was a very repressive government. It was a very puritanical government. And King Charles's heirs then become king again, right? Well, after 11 years, um, well, first Oliver Cromwell died, and then his son Richard became the next protector, and he didn't have his father's charisma. And it, things just really started falling apart. And Charles II came back from France, where he'd been in exile, and was crowned king. And at first he said he would sort of extend amnesty to everybody who'd been involved in beheading his father. But then as soon as he was crowned king, it was like he was out to get them. And they were in deep So much for that trouble. amnesty thing. Yes. <laughs> okay. So uh, we should note for listeners just joining us, so we're speaking with Sarah Dixwell-Brown, a longtime writing instructor at Mount Holyoke College and the UMass Honors College, who has a new book, Regicide, in the Family, Finding John Dixwell. Okay, your great, 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 great. Seven, seven greats. That's how we describe it. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, uh, grandfather, uh, John Dixwell, uh, up to his ears in the trial of the king, found responsible for treason and the execution of the king, which occurred. His life takes a well, radically bad turn because, well, he's on the to-be-executed list of the new king, right? Well, first they, they had trials for each of them. Oh, they did? Yes, they did. And then they... They tried the judges who had tried the king yes. and found them guilty. Yes. Of overthrowing the monarchy. So, so John Dixon was summoned to appear in court... And he said, I'll be right there, but I'm indisposed. I'm a little bit sick right now, and so can I delay it and come in in a few days? And then he went to Germany just as quickly and quietly as he could in the dark of night. <laughs> and from Germany? We don't know exactly what happened. About five years went, about five years went by. Um, but then he shows up, and I love this, for this radio station in beautiful Hadley. Massachusetts. Massachusetts, 1665, February. <laughs> okay, here he is. We have someone who is a uh, participant in the execution of the king in Hadley, Massachusetts. Uh, we don't know exactly why Hadley, but there he is. What happens? Oh, we do know why. Oh, we know why he came Asparagus. to Hadley? Asparagus. <laughs> he wanted some of the Hadley's grass, yes. <laughs> the reason is, well, there two other regicides were already here, much more important regicides, Edward Whaley and William Goff, who had been major generals under Cromwell. They were hiding, and they were being hidden in the uh, Reverend John Russell's house 
And you should know Hadley at that point was like three minutes old. It was a brand new little community. And that's why Route 9 is called Russell Street in Hadley for the Reverend John Russell, who could have been killed for hiding them. The whole town could have been severely punished. They kept the secret for well over 10 years. And when you say the secret, what's the secret? Of the regicides hidden in their midst. And the people became known as the regicides? Well, I think they wanted to be called judges. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The regicides is a cool band name, though. Yeah, it would be. Um, all right, so your seventh great uh, grandfather is in Hadley. Uh, he has a death warrant on his head? Well, the Charles II sent over his... They were called commissioners, <clears throat> and they were charged with tracking down the regicides. And so they'd been looking for Whaley and Goff. But Dixwell was a very clever dude, and he created the impression that he was already dead. So they didn't look for him as hard, but they suspected he might be here. But they really looked for Whaley and Goff. But some of the major bigwigs in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and in the New Haven Colony really put their lives on the line by hiding them and protecting them and lying about their whereabouts. Now, you say one of the regicides' name was Whaley or Waitley? Whaley. Oh, so it's not the town Waitley. No, no. connection there. Russell Street, yes. Waitley, no. Yes, that's right. Okay, got it. But <laughs> if you drive along Route 9, you'll find all these um, places that honor Whaley and Goff right near the Dunkin' Donuts in Hadley. There's a Whaley Street and a Goff Street, and there's a stone marker and right near Chili's, near Stop and Shop in Hadley, there's a, a marker honoring Whaley and Goff. I'm a little insulted that they don't include Dixwell. I certainly understand that. Uh, Maybe they will now. And were they honoring them post-revolution? Because I'm imagining the colony would be hard-pressed to want to honor the regicides in their midst in you, the colonial era. You're absolutely right, Monty. You had to say, I never knew the man. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have two why questions for you. The first is, well, it's a title of one of the chapters in the book. Why did John Dixwell do it? Why did John Dixwell do it? And we're talking about uh, regicide. Okay, or getting to regicide. Yeah, what does it take to bring people to the point where the only solution they can see is killing, killing their leader? Um, I think a lot of things played into John Dixwell's willingness to do that. But of course, I was speculating. And I, 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 I came to ideas about why he might have done it by learning all about his life. Right. It's a really interesting story that I don't think is often told that uh, Great Britain, England, had a uh, republic for some 11 years, uh, preceding the American Revolution. Uh, and so when the British Crown said, what are you doing over there in the colonies? Whoever thought of such a thing, whatever it is you're trying to propose over there, actually had already occurred. It had been suppressed eventually, but it had been part of the history of Great Britain, of England, but uh, 100 years before the American Revolution. That's right. And it may have contributed to the thinking that led to the French Revolution as well. It was like, what, how do you, at what point do you start questioning and saying, why shouldn't the people be governing the people? Why shouldn't they have representation? They even stole the beheading idea, the French. I'm s yes, the guillotine. Oh, dear. <laughs> so I love the, the title chapters uh, to your book, Dixie. Why did John Dixwell do it? Followed by how Charles I lost his head. It's, it's, a real, it's just this wonderful story you tell, uh, disturbing at various points. Also, it's very humorous at various points in the book. I, I would like to know uh, the answer to this question. Your, your chapter heading title is, Why Did John Dixwell Do It? I, in terms of this book, why did you do it? What brought you and got you so immersed in this family history, which apparently had been pretty much lost or covered up or suppressed? Tell us about that. I, it's, it's interesting because I've met a lot of distant and not-so-distant cousins in the course of writing the book, and in other descendants of Dixwell families, they were proud of it, and they talked all about it, and they took their kids to see his grave in New Haven, but my father didn't breathe a word. So um, I think I was kind of indignant about that. I thought it was unfair and strange that my father 
didn't talk about it. And I also just really wanted to know why he did why he did do it. It just was so interesting. Like what would lead a person to be willing to make a decision that would mean that he was, you know, he was he became a black sheep in his family. He was rejected by everybody. He lost all his money and position. And it was all for an idea. And I guess I've always been interested in people who are willing to risk everything for really an ideal, you know, which is that the people should govern themselves. You state in your book, uh, one of the reasons for suppressing this family history is that you didn't want to be known or the family didn't want to be known as a family that went around killing kings and then running from the law. Uh, tell us more, if you would, please, about what happened to uh, John uh, Dixwell after he arrives in Hadley. He, uh, he, he survives, but he does have this bounty on his head. He has a death warrant executed against him, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I... I mean, I think into the 20th century, um, they're, they're still considered traitors and murderers, and they still have a national day of mourning on the day that Charles was killed, which was January 30th, 1649. They still lay wreaths at the foot of his various statues, and there's a chapter for... He, he became a Christian martyr at the moment of his death in people's minds. They rushed up and they dipped their handkerchiefs in the blood on the scaffold, because they thought those handkerchiefs could heal diseases because he was such a, a saint. And we have a chapter in New York City, a chapter of the Society of King Charles the Martyr. Okay. There's another piece of the story which I want to ask you about uh, while we have just a few minutes left, and that is the key. You have here a, uh, I guess, iron key. Um, what is it, and what's its role in the story? At the end of the 11 years that England wasn't a monarchy, uh, John Dixwell was appointed the governor of Dover Castle, and Dover Castle is a military fortification um, overlooking the English Channel, and it's where invaders have always come to conquer England. So when he was governor of Dover Castle, he was in charge of basically keeping England safe. And so that's one of my points in the book, was that he really thought by serving as a judge of Charles I, he was keeping watch over his country. Is that the actual produce bag that your father wrapped it in right there? <laughs> when you mentioned it before, uh, the, 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 your father gave you a key wrapped in a produce bag. Of course, it's a sacred object. Wow, they're both sacred objects. I love it, both the produce bag and the key. It's the original produce bag too? Indeed it is. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Good question, why that, that hadn't occurred to me. Immediately when she was saying that, I was like, I bet that's the bag. <laughs> wow. Okay, well, Dixie, uh, Sarah Dixwell-Brown, let me, let me ask you this. You, you did an enormous amount of research. You tell the story in this wonderful conversational way. Uh, what I would like to know from you is what, what did you learn that totally surprised you or what lessons did you learn that you didn't expect in doing the research and writing this book? Which, by the way, took you how long to write? I don't want to admit that, Bill. <laughs> Decades. <laughs> Well, it, it's, it's, it's a beautifully produced book. It also has some wonderful, wonderful uh, photographs, and it has one of the keys, photograph of the key we were just talking about. Um, but what did you learn that you didn't expect? I guess I learned to be more nuanced in my own thinking. You know, I mean, when I first heard about him and what he'd done, I was horrified. It really, I mean, literally the hair stood up on the back of my neck. just seemed so, so awful that things came to th that point that they actually killed somebody and but I mean I I just end up feeling so much I guess pride in what John Dixel had done and compassion for the really hard things in his life I mean he he you know during the time he was in New Haven he actually got married twice and he had children with a much younger wife which is why I'm here and why I have the key but they had almost not enough money to eat and his gravestone, there's an interesting story. It's, maybe you could tell us that in summary form, the story of how his grave is marked. Well, he wanted only his initials on his little gravestone, J.D., because he knew that British soldiers would come and desecrate it. And they, in fact, did, especially during the years leading up and throughout the Revolutionary War, because they figured out which one was his. 
We still don't know where Edward Whaley and William Goff's bodies are. Well, we do know from you where some of these markers in honor of these heroes. Dunkin' Donuts, chilies. <laughs> what could honor them more than chain stores? <laughs> we have been speaking with Sarah Dixwell Brown. Her new book, it's just, it's a fabulous story. You should go buy this book at Broadside and your other local independent well, book. Well, no, actually from Leveler's Press. Oh, you can get direct from Leveler's. From okay. Leveler's Press. Or on Amazon. Okay. And Lever's Press has its store in still in downtown Amherst? Right there. Yes. You can get it from a bookstore eventually, but we're not doing that quite yet. Okay. The book has just been published. The title is Regicide in the Family, Finding John Dixwell. It's a great read. Go buy this book and read it. You will do yourself a great favor. Thank you, Dixie, for being with us. Thank you for your book. Thank you so much for having me. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The VA hospital in Leeds will remain open. Back in March, the Department of Veterans Affairs suggested closing the Leeds facility due to significant maintenance issues, investment requirements, and engineering challenges at the building. The idea sparked outrage among veterans and their supporters who depend on local services. Senator John Velas spoke with Western Mass News. The powers that be heard loud and clear from many people that this would have been a horrendous idea if they went forward. So I'm happy they listened. The announcement comes after the recommendation of the closing of the facility and relocating services to Springfield and Connecticut. A church in Holyoke may be turned into a museum, restaurant, and motorcycle dealership. The Holyoke City Council's Ordinance Committee will review an application at tonight's meeting to change zoning at the historic Highlands Church on the corner of Hamden and Pleasant Streets. Dennis Boldick, owner of Indian Motorcycle of Springfield, submitted the application. A new development in Sunderland will receive a grant for affordable housing. It comes from Mass Housing, who has given $41.2 million to subsidize affordable housing in a recently purchased mixed-income apartment complex off Route 116. The apartment complex will be called North 116 Flats and is owned by Landmark Properties, a Georgia-based company. Under the affordable housing guidelines, there will be at least 20 to 25 percent of the units with long-term affordability restrictions. Nice run of quiet weather here through the middle of the week. Mostly sunny, breezy, less humid today. A high of 76 to 80. Mostly clear, cool tonight. Evening temperatures will be in the 70s. Overnight lows of 50 to 56. Sun cloud mix and breezy tomorrow. A high of 82 to 86. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El panel de la Cámara de Representantes del 6 de enero está convocando una audiencia sorpresa esta semana para presentar evidencia que dice haber obtenido recientemente. La audiencia prevista para la una de la tarde este martes llega después de que el Congreso dejara Washington por un receso de dos semanas. Los legisladores del panel que investiga la insurrección del 6 de enero de 2021 dijeron la semana pasada que no habría más audiencias hasta julio. El tema de las audiencias no está claro hasta ahora. La investigación del comité ha estado en curso durante la las audiencias que comenzaron hace tres semanas y el panel de nueve miembros ha seguido investigando el ataque de los partidarios del entonces presidente Donald Trump. Los legisladores dijeron la semana pasada que las dos audiencias de julio se centrarían en los extremistas nacionales que irrumpieron en el Capitolio ese día y en lo que Trump estaba haciendo a medida que se desarrollaba la violencia. En otras informaciones, Pfizer anunció el sábado que ajustar su vacuna COVID-19 para atacar mejor la variante Omicron es segura y funciona, solo unos días antes de que los reguladores debatan si ofrecer a los estadounidenses vacunas de refuerzo actualizadas este otoño. Las vacunas que se utilizan actualmente en los Estados Unidos aún ofrecen una fuerte protección contra la enfermedad grave y la muerte por COVID-19, especialmente si las personas recibieron una dosis de refuerzo. Pero esas vacunas se dirigen a la cepa original del coronavirus y su eficacia contra cualquier infección se redujo notablemente cuando surgió el supercontagioso mutante Omicron. La Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos está considerando ordenar un cambio de receta para las vacunas fabricadas tanto por Pfizer como por su rival Moderna con la esperanza de que los refuerzos modificados puedan proteger mejor contra otro aumento repentino de COVID-19 que se espera para este otoño e invierno. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. 
This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Talking Baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman member and leading light of Sabre, the Society of American Baseball Research, and author about baseball, someone who is a baseball historian and is expert in the field of the Negro Leagues, which is something you have just been involved with. Tell us a bit of where you've been, what you've been doing, if you would, please, Duke. Sure. I was in Birmingham, Alabama, at the Jerry Malloy Conference of the Society for American Baseball Research is Negro Leagues Committee. It's the first conference we had live in five years. We had it in Birmingham because Birmingham has the oldest surviving ballpark in America, Rickwood Field, which also Willie Mays played there for the Birmingham Black Barons, the last ballpark that still exists where New League games were played. And to this day, they still play high school and college ball at Rickwood Field. They also have a Negro Southern league museum in birmingham and on top of that they have an alabama sports hall of fame so it's quite a sports city and believe it or not bill they have a mural in downtown birmingham of the yankees because what i discovered no no do that again slowly and in english they have a they have a mural where about what right on one on government street there is a big wall-sized mural of Yankees like Yogi Berra and Derek Jeter and Joe DiMaggio and Babe Ruth um, because a, a lawyer who has an office there is a lifelong Yankee fan and his wife commissioned a mural of those <laughs> Yankees. And I discovered a lot of Birmingham people are old time Birmingham people are Yankees fans because they watched game of the week Yankee games in the 50s and 60s when there were no major league teams in the vicinity. Okay, go back for a minute. I know, and we're, we should let our listeners know we're going to have Duke back on. I think in about two weeks, and we're going to have an entire discussion for half the show about the Negro Leagues and that uh, aspect of baseball and the history of the United States. I, I would like to uh, have you share for a minute, if you would, Duke, uh, what the conference was, what your research has been, uh, what you're working on in terms of this history. Yeah. So the conference has. Resolutions all about Negro Leagues history um, and particularly about issues having to do with the declaration of in December 2020 that the Negro Leagues are being considered major league. And I did a presentation with a co-presenter, uh, Ben Alter, on um, the combining of data for players like Monty Irvin, whose biography I'm writing and we've talked about previously, that he had data in both the Negro Leagues and the Major Leagues, and it's, it's or formerly what was considered the Major Leagues, and now it's been combined. Uh, Major League Baseball did this precipitously without consulting experts like in my society, and I, I think in many ways it does an injustice to Negro League greats by what they've done. So, um, I'm going to go further and look further at that that data as I work on Monty Irvin's biography. And you have reservations about combining the data, the statistics from the Negro, Negro Leagues with the other uh, data information and statistics from uh, Major League Baseball. Can you summarize that for us? And we'll come back to it in a couple of weeks. But sure. why? why? Um, because... It's kind of like comparing apples and oranges. The Negro League seasons were considerably shorter than uh, the major league seasons. Um, the leagues um, were drawing from different populations and uh, contemporaries said the Negro Leagues were lacked the depth that the, major, the then major leagues had, although it's also been pointed out that those major leagues, the white major leagues, were lacking the great black stars. Um, but in some ways, by combining the data, players like Monty Irvin uh, really end up looking worse uh, because most of the Negro League stars, when they came to the major leagues, did not perform as well as they did in the Negro League. So I want to see that data looked at, and I'm using a word people don't like, separately. 
because I think the Negro League data stands on its own as being important major league data that should be looked at by itself. Is there an implication from this data that you just told us about that, in fact, the Negro Leagues were not as competitive or did not have the same uh, quality of uh, uh, baseball skill as the, the other major leagues? Well, of course, this is controversial and not everybody agrees on it. Um, I think most people realize and recognize that the top talent in the Negro Leagues was every bit as good as in the white major leagues. The stars were phenomenal. But the argument is that, and Monty Irvin in particular said this, that the depth was lacking. In other words, the top two or three pitchers on a staff in the Negro Leagues would be major league caliber. But the fourth or fifth pitchers were not. They were drawing from a about one eighth or one ninth of the population. And so it, it stands to reason that they would not have as much depth. And the Negro Leagues also did not have the resources, the coaches, the facilities, the practice time uh, and all of that. I mean, it was separate and unequal. So absolutely. And I suspect that all of those disadvantages play into the. Uh, the, the story about how those Negro League players fared finally once the color barrier was was uh, breached uh, by uh, Jackie Robinson. So we're going to go on to something else in just a minute, but what's your, what's your conclusion about that? How do you feel about it personally, or haven't you completed the research? My conclusion is the Negro Leagues were major leagues, without a doubt. They were playing in difficult circumstances. The performers were outstanding. And recognizing them at major, as major leagues is a good thing, but we also have to recognize and specify the racial injustices that Major League Baseball perpetuated, and I think they are whitewashing their past by their announcement that the Negro Leagues are Major Leagues. There are a lot of implications that have not been fully explored, and Major League Baseball needs to be held accountable. We are speaking with Duke Goldman. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to highlight how fabulously well the Boston Red Sox have been playing. And we may mention the New York Yankees as well. We'll be right back. <laughs> this is Bill Newman, WHMP. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. Your weed eater. We mean weed whacker, but weed eater fits better in this ad. Makes life simpler. Well, now the mortgage eater from Franklin First does that as well. Franklin First reintroduces the Mortgage Eater Loan, the loan that pays off your first mortgage or works as a second mortgage to give you financial flexibility. Mortgage Eater Loans start at five-year terms and have no closing costs. So visit franklinfirst.org, get all the details, and apply online. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, member NCUA, equal housing lender. When somebody dies, even if it's somebody old or somebody sick and the family is expecting it, it's still a shock. For the past 110 years, the Saluzniak family has opened the doors to their home for generations of Hampshire, Hamden, and Franklin County families, offering comfort and guidance when it's needed most. There's a certain assurance from knowing that for 110 years, four generations have offered caring help with honesty, integrity, understanding, and the highest standards. The Saluzniak family wants you to know they understand things may have changed, but their dedication to helping your loved ones in your time of loss has never wavered and it never will. They are here for you taking every precaution and will help you understand how you can pay tribute during this challenging time. Saluzniak Funeral Home up at North Street, Northampton. Oh, people have always had a hard time saying Saluzniak. It seems that the CZ always gets everybody. Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton. They're not easy to spell, but they are CZ to spell. 
Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is going back to traditions here. Uh, this is Port Eskeg, eight-year-old single malt scotch. So it's actual scotch? This is Scotland scotch, mm. scotchy scotch scotch. This is an Isla single malt, peatier in style. This one does not suffer supply chain issues because you wouldn't be giving it to us if it did, right? Correct. It says Port Eskeg, which is a location, but it's an independent bottler that gives them their whiskey. Because there's so many different approaches on whiskey, I really try and hit everything with a very open mind as far as what can be good. This one got 95 points at the, the Ultimate Spirits Challenge. I think this is very good. And how much is this single mall? This is 66.99, so it's kind of right in that low to mid entry level price point. Find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at State Street. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Duke Goldman, Northampton base baseball historian and author and researcher. Uh, Duke, I, I would like to have your perspective on this part of the season. The New York Yankees do not have a 300 hitter in their lineup. Their number nine hitter uh, consistently, Joey Gallo, is batting under 170. Uh, there is very little uh, reason to expect uh, that the Yankees somehow are going to win games. And yet, in the most unusual, bizarre ways, they just keep winning games. Uh, they have a record that's like 730 winning percentage. Uh, they are 12, 12, 11, 12 games ahead of the Red Sox. 12. In the American League East. Uh, they keep winning, even though they don't. their record is far better than the team, it seems to me. And I'd appreciate your perspective. I think the Yankees are a juggernaut. I think they're going to win, maybe break the all-time record for wins. I think they're going to keep winning all season long. I think they're every bit as good as they look. For once, they actually have a player that's every bit as good as people think he is, Aaron Judge. Judge, Stanton, and Rizzo are going to hit 150 home runs between the three of them. Um, uh, Holmes has stepped in as the closer and is doing a better job than Aroldis Chapman was doing for the last few years. Uh, Garrett Cole, much as I can't stand him, is a, a great pitcher. And even when the Yankees look like they're going to get no hit, they win on catcher's interference. So, yes, they also <laughs> luck is with them, too. So I think they're going to win, 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 win and win and maybe hopefully lose in, in the postseason. You were doing so to well the there wild for a while. Red Sox. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So okay, but let's 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 go to the Red Sox because they looked terrible at the beginning of the season, and now they are a jug juggernaut. They don't lose. They don't lose either. Now it's going to be they lost night. Okay. So the Yankees <laughs> lost two games to Houston too. They, they will split the series, uh, and we're really sure. lucky. And we're almost the Yankees are almost no hit two games in a row. Um, so. But anyway, Boston keeps winning and winning. They could certainly could be there in the they are the first wild card position at this point. They get into the playoffs as a wild card, first wild card. They could become the World Series champions. Anything's possible, you know. The Red Sox are were not nearly as bad as they looked in the first month of the season and they're not nearly as good as they looked and the, have looked in the last month. They're doing it with mirrors to some degree. They're starting Oh, not trash can lids this time. I'm sorry. <laughs> Starting pitching, you know, and they have, you know, Ivaldi and, and Whitlock are on the disabled list, and yet their starting pitching continues to look good, but their bullpen is really in a shambles. Three guys are hitting like crazy for them, and we all know who they are. The rest of the team is below average in hitting. Jackie Bradley can't hit to save his life, much as I love him in the outfield. And you know who leads the Red Sox in RBIs? Um... Devers. No. That would have been my guess. Keep guessing. Uh, uh, J.D. Martinez? No. Keep guessing. Wade Boggs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they could be him. Well, it's Trevor Story. Wow. Trevor Story, Trevor Story batting eighth? In RBIs. He's got 51. And you know what? He's terrible. 
<laughs> OPS plus is below average. He's a below average major leaguer. All of which says the most overrated statistic in all of baseball is the run batted in statistic. Hmm. Guess guess who had more hundred RBI seasons? Mickey Mantle or Joe Carter, famous for hitting the winning home run off Mitch Williams in the nineteen ninety three World Series. I'm going to go with Joe Carter. I'm going to go with Joe Carter, too. <laughs> yes. Now, guess this. Who had more 100 RBI seasons? Joe Carter or Mickey Mantle, Bryce Harper, and Mike Trout combined? I'm going to go with Carter again. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I had... <laughs> Carter had 10 100 RBI seasons. Mantle, Harper, and Trout combined had, so far, nine. Is what? Joe Carter in the Hall of Fame? No. Will he ever be? No. Will Harper, Trout, and Mantle all be in the Hall of Fame? Will Harper and Trout potentially be unanimous picks? Yes, because the RBI is the most overrated statistic in baseball. Carter is in the RBI Hall of Fame, though. Oh, well, that might be, but he's not in the Hall of Fame because he was a very <laughs> mediocre player. Who His best statistic was RBIs. One year, he drove in, I think, 118 runs, and he had a below 400 uh, slugging percentage. But wait a second, Duke. If someone's on base, the idea is to bring him across the plate to score a run. That seems like a good thing to do. If the guy's on third and they're less than two outs and you hit a sacrifice fly, you get an RBI or run batted in. That's like a really good thing. And a lot of major leaguers don't do that to the detriment of their team. Why are you, why are you so anti-RBI? What's wrong because with Because RBIs Goldman? are a function of opportunities. When you have lots of opportunities, you're going to drive in a fair amount of runs. And in the long run, players' ability to drive in a run when there are runners in scoring position pretty much evens out. It's more a function of opportunity. Uh, uh, people like Trout and Harper don't get a lot of RBI opportunities except to drive themselves in. They haven't played on great teams, and um, people don't pitch to them. Some of the players that drive in the most runs are the ones who get pitched to. Okay, Duke, we have a minute left. Wes, you want to tell us about your beloved Mets? The Mets are great. Uh, but uh, Buck Showalter's doing a great job. Almost everybody Manager. in the entire lineup, unlike the Red Sox, is an above-average offensive player. And Scherzer and hopefully DeGrom will be coming back to pitch. So the question is, Will the Mets be even better? But right now, the Mets have the second-best record in baseball, and they have a five-game lead in the NL East, even though the Braves recently won 14 games in a row. So, you know, I think we're going to, we may have a Subway Series this year, and maybe we'll even have a surprise victor. Ooh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. We're going, to have to do, we're going to have to do this show around the World Series with Duke here in the studio. Oh. Rooting for the wait. Mets against the Yankees? I'd be willing for it to not be the Red Sox just to see that happen. That would be so great. <laughs> it would. Duke, it's a great baseball season, though. Yes? It is. It's phenomenal. Re I've really enjoyed it. It's really exciting. We'll have much, much, much more to talk about with Duke Goldman. He'll be back with us very soon. Thanks for your time today, Duke. Thanks for all your work and your research and being such an important part of this important game. Duke Goldman, this has been Talking Baseball with the Duke. Town blues are melting away. I'll make a brand new start of it in old New York. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, public health nurse with the city of Northampton. The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the City of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on Vaccine Clinics. The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, Pediatric Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson & Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages 5 and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19, and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.